the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Forgiveness. It's a challenge, even on the best of days. So today, as we look at Luke 17, we'll help encourage you in a life of forgiveness. Next, join us. Forgiveness is a challenge even on a good day, isn't it? And here in Luke 17, Jesus helps us out. Living a life of forgiveness is the title of our message today. Join us here in Luke 17, verses 1 through 19, as we explore this area of forgiveness and how we are to live a life of forgiveness. With this edition of Abounding Grace, once again, our teacher and pastor, here's Pastor Gary Wagner. And let's now go to Luke 17 and see what Jesus teaches us about how to forgive and when to forgive one another. The 19 verses that Alex read are very easy to outline. Three basic points and three sub-points. Three basic points. Number one, Jesus says we must be willing to forgive. Number two, Jesus accepts no excuses for failing to forgive like oh, I don't feel like it, or I need more faith, or I'll forgive when so-and-so shows me more improvement. And thirdly, Jesus says forgive because he commands it. Now let's go verse by verse through our text. Verse 1 and 2. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in the sea and the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. So here we see Jesus telling us that stumbling blocks are dangerous. That stumbling blocks discourage people from following Jesus. And they lead people to sin. So be on your guard. And whatever it takes, do not become a stumbling block. Because he says in very strong words, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and for him to be thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones. And by little ones, it means new or weak Christians to stumble. Now, verse 2, at least to me, is scary enough just reading the words without even thinking about it. But do you know what it's actually saying? Verse 2 is saying that it would be better for a person to die a violent death than to become a stumbling block in someone's life. Why would it be better for us to die a violent death than becoming a stumbling block in someone else's life? Because in dying a horrible death, we would avoid being a stumbling block and receive a woe or a denunciation or a judgment that is far worse from God than having a millstone put around our neck and to be cast into the middle of the sea. That's how terrible it is to be a stumbling block. Now in this context, how can you become a stumbling block? 
And there are two ways in this particular context. By being unwilling to forgive people, harboring a bitter attitude and a bitter spirit toward them, and secondly, by being unwilling to repent and refusing to go to other people and asking for forgiveness. That's how serious forgiveness is, brothers. Now notice in verses 3 and 4, we see two very powerful exhortations given us. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Here you have two exhortations that describe life in the kingdom of God. One, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, rebuke doesn't mean to jump down the other person's throat. Rebuke means that because you have a concern for your brother, and you recognize that the choices that he's been making, the life he is living, the sins he is committing are taking him down a dead-end road. And so then out of love for him, you comfort him caringly with his sin, and you urge him to repent of the course that he's taken for himself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then the other exhortation. If your brother sins and repents, forgive him. Of course, if we're going to lovingly rebuke our brother when he sins, and that doesn't mean necessarily when he sins against us, but if you see your brother, a fellow member of the church, a brother or sister in Christ sinning, you don't say, well, boy, I hope the, the elders take care of this one. No. The first line of defense is you. The Bible says if you see someone in church sinning, you don't wait for the elders. In fact, they're the last line of defense. They only get involved if need be at the end of the forgiving process. Scripture says if you, are, if you see a brother sin, and you have the responsibility of going to him yourself and trying to reclaim him and restore him. And if you don't do it, then you become guilty of sinning as well and are a stumbling block in his life by not encouraging him to live a faithful Christian life. So it says, if your brother sins, lovingly rebuke him. But in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, which says, Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, when you try this once and you fail, you must not say, well, at least I tried to restore him. I, I, I tried to get him to straighten up, but he refused. Now he'll just have to get what he deserves. No. Matthew 18 says that if you've gone to him and you have lovingly rebuked him and tried to call him back to the straight and narrow, but he refuses, don't stop there in frustration. Get a couple of witnesses and the two or three of you confront him and help him to see the error of his way. Then, if that doesn't work, you turn him over to the elders. And then the elders try to restore him and bring him to repentance. But after all that, if none of this works, then the elders 
must excommunicate him from the church, which means to hand him over to Satan, that he may learn not to blaspheme God and be brought to repentance and hopefully to restoration in the church. But the point of all this is, you have the responsibility of going after a brother and sister when they sin. And then when they repent and they listen to your rebuke, it says you are to forgive him. It says in verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, a good question that we've gone this far. What is forgiveness? What do you normally think of when you hear the word forgiveness. Well, for most people, it is forgetting, right? Some of you think of that, forgetting. Forgive and forget. Well, that is impossible. There are all kinds of things you cannot forget. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is making a promise. Forgetting what the person whom you have forgiven has done to you will only happen after you see the changes God makes in his life over a long period of time and those sins become repressed in your memory. Forgiveness of other people is to be same as God's forgiveness to you. What does God say when he forgives you? He says, I will remember your sins against you no more. He makes a promise to you. When someone asks, will you forgive me of my sins? And you say, I will, which is your duty to do. You are saying three things to that person. You are saying, I will not bring this up to you again and hold it against you. I will not bring this up to anyone else. And the hardest thing, I will do my dead level best with the help of God to not dwell on it or think about it anymore. Now, if we really understand what forgiveness is, life would be a lot sweeter around the home between husbands and wives. What is usually the husband's main complaint in the home against his wife? She's always nagging about things that are wrong. I know they're wrong, but why does she have to always be nagging at me? What does the wife say? The wife says, he's always making me feel inadequate because of the criticisms he has against me. Oh, I'll admit I have done things wrong in our marriage, but why does he always have to criticize me? And things stay like this, unresolved. And there is a boiling and a churning that goes on inside. Well, do you want to get her off your back? Do you want to get him off your back? Then go to him or her and say, Dear, you know all of those sins in my life that you're always complaining about and making me feel so small over? I want to ask you for forgiveness for this and for this and for this. Would you please forgive me? Then what is the other person's duty at that point? His or her duty is to say, Yes, I do forgive you. Then when he says yes, he is saying, I'm not ever going to bring this up again. I'm not going to make you feel small or inadequate about this, this again. I won't bring it up to my best friend and cut you down. I'm not even going to dwell on this ever with God's help. 
And what you are doing is shutting the other person up. Because that's what forgiveness is all about. It brings healing to these relationships so that they do not fester and thus poison the relationship. So it says, if your friend who sinned repents, forgive him, which means you are making him a promise and a commitment. I commit to you that I will not bring this up to you ever again. Now that means he's got to ask you to forgive a specific sin. If he comes to you and asks, would you please forgive me of all the sins I've committed you over the past year? You say, what? No, it should be. Would you forgive me of this particular sin that I committed to you on the other day, which was? And then you say, yes, I will never bring it up to you or anyone else. And I promise with God's help never to dwell on it again. But never say, beloved, well, I'll do that, but not until I see some clear-cut repentance in his life. I mean, I've been taken advantage of long enough. I've been hurt so many times. I've been lifted up by repentance and then brought down and crushed at other times by him doing the same old thing again. So I'm not going to forgive him until I see real repentance. Because after all, the Bible does say in our text, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, really repents... I'll forgive him. So I'm not going to forgive him until I see clear-cut repentance. Well, let's read verse 4 and see how clear-cut and mature repentance is supposed to be. That conditions our forgiveness. Forgiveness is conditioned by repentance. But what kind of repentance? It says, And if he sins against you seven times a day, And returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now that's not the most clear-cut repentance in the world, is it? Nine o'clock one morning, your husband comes home and he kicks your favorite cat. And about 15 minutes later, he comes to you and says, Dear, would you please forgive me for kicking your cat? Yes, honey. Now it's 11.30 and the cat knocks over the water dish. And your husband kicks the cat again. Fifteen minutes later, he comes to you and he says, Honey, will you forgive me? I kicked the cat. At 12.30, the cat scratches your husband's leg. He kicks the cat. Fifteen minutes later, Honey, I tried not to, but I was so mad when she scratched me. Would you forgive me for kicking the cat? Yes. Three o'clock. Now, That is four times he has kicked the wife's cat. But he's got three more to go, right? (laughs) That is not the greatest repentance in the world. But that is, in a way, the minimal repentance that God says conditions repentance. In other words, don't expect the best. Take what you get. And don't say when he comes to you after the sixth time of kicking the cat and say, Dear, that's the sixth time. You've only got one more. Why? Because every time is the first time. That is what Jesus is saying when he says seven times a day. He's not making a literal statement here, of course. In another place, he says, you must forgive 70 times seven. 
So what is he saying? Every time is the first time. And every time he asks for forgiveness, you are duty-bound to grant it. So what is required of repentance? A minimal repentance. Now, this does not mean that you should allow yourself to be taken advantage of and be mocked. If a brother or sister continues unabated in the same old sin, you may need to ask help from your elders to help show this person his way out of this. Now, there's another reason I need to bring up another thing I need to bring up here, and that is this. Although a person may be forgiven as well as forgiven by us, that does not cut off all the consequences that may flow from his sin. Because forgiveness is sweet, but actions have consequences, beloved. Let's consider David, Bathsheba, and Nathan. Nathan the prophet comes to David because God told Nathan that David committed adultery. And so Nathan preaches to David. David repents, and God fully restores David, fully forgives him. He doesn't kill him as he certainly could have because he fully deserved it. The relationship is renewed. There's no break between God and David any longer. David is fully repentant. He is a different man. He is changed. God loves him as a man after his own heart. Their fellowship is now sweet once again. But listen to these words in Second Samuel, First uh, Samuel twelve verses thirteen and fourteen. Nathan is preached to David, and David says to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin; you shall not die. The fellowship has been restored; your sins have been forgiven." Next verse. Nevertheless, because this of this deed. You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. David said, Lord, I repent. God said, I forgive you. You are fully restored. But there are consequences, David. Because you see, you have ruined my reputation. The world is going to think that I have favorites. That I let my favorites get away with however they want to live. And that... I am only nasty and judgmental to people like the Philistines and the Canaanites. That I am a hypocritical God. David, I have my own name and reputation to vindicate. So the world will know I am a holy God who punishes sin in my people as well as my enemies. Your little seven-day-old baby with Bathsheba will die. And he did. But, beloved, this wasn't punishment on David. It was a consequence of David's sin to clear God's reputation. Remember that. Then there is a second thing to remind ourselves of here, particularly in today's world. After we've sinned against someone, asked for forgiveness, and it has been granted, and we hear something like this. I know that God has forgiven me, and I'm sure my wife has forgiven me, But I just can't seem to be able to forgive myself. Beloved, I hope you can't. I hope you never do. Nowhere in the Bible 
are we told to forgive ourselves? In the Bible, we see that the people of God who sinned and repented and who were forgiven by God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus never forgave themselves of their sins. The memory of those sins brought them to their knees and was often a motive for greater and more consistent repentance and more gratitude to God for saving them, undeserving that they were. What do you think Paul was thinking about when he said in Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What do you think he's talking about here? He was talking about all those Christians he led to their deaths. He never got over that. He never forgave himself for it. And every time he thought of those things, it shamed him and drove him nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ in a renewed request for forgiveness and independence upon him. But J. Adams makes an insightful analysis of the person who says, well, I just can't forgive myself. What is this person really saying? This is brilliant. J. Adams. The the dynamic behind the person's uneasiness is twofold. He senses, but often cannot articulate clearly the fact that one, though forgiven, he feels as though he is still the same person, unchanged, who did the wrong. Something more is needed to keep him from doing it again. He must change. When a person says, I just can't seem to forgive myself, what he is really saying is, I'm still the same person. I'm still the, I, I feel the same temptations, the same desire to sin. There is not that change in my life that there needs to be. And if that is you, and you've done something in your life that you just can't forgive yourself, stop trying to forgive yourself. It is God you sinned against. Ask Him to forgive you through Jesus. The reason you feel like this is one, you recognize that changes haven't been made that will keep you from doing this again. And secondly, though forgiven, you have done nothing more in your life to establish a new and better relationship with God or your neighbor. And unless you do, the future relationship will drift. And it is likely to be more bad than good, end quote. So what is he saying when he says he can't forgive himself? I still feel like the relationship is broken, and it probably is. He needs to go back, and he needs to examine, have I really repented and made peace between God and myself? Has there been real confession on my part? And am I truly humbled before God? Am I truly turning to Him for forgiveness? And what about the person to whom you have sinned? Has there really been an effort to restore that relationship? That's why we must never forgive ourselves. It drives us to examine ourselves and make sure we are truly the repentant person we've been called to be before God. Well, in verses 5 and 6, you see the response of the apostles. 
Uh, Jesus says to them, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times a day, and ask you to forgive him, and he says he repents, you are to forgive him. Well, the response of the apostles in this verse is a bit humorous. As the apostles said to the Lord, Oh, increase our faith. Lord, if you want us to forgive people seven times in a day, you're going to need to increase the faith that we have now. So in verse 6, Jesus says, No, I don't. You don't need any more faith to do what I have told you to do. He said, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You, you don't need more faith. He said, the problem is your faith doesn't rest adequately on me. Because what, faith, what gives faith its power is the object upon which it rests. And if you depend on me and you trust in me completely, then you will be able to do what is, in, what is humanly impossible. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Mm -hmm.